Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Compliance Guy. I'm Sean Weiss. And as always, I want to say thank you all so much for tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with me and my special guests for a little while as we get to talk about my favorite topic, compliance. Today is Thursday, July 21st in the great year 2022. And I am joined by Maggie Parrott, who is a Compliance, a corporate compliance officer and a Medicare compliance officer for Mass Advantage, which is a Medicare Advantage plan, and she's based out of Tampa, Florida. Uh, real quick, a little bit about Maggie, and and I do want to say this. Well, I'll say it after I get done. Um, a little bit more about Maggie. She's an experienced professional with a demonstrated history of working in the pharmacy and insurance industries. Uh, with skills in pharmacy management, root cause analysis, continuous quality improvement and training. And she is a fellow member of HCCA, and she is certified in healthcare compliance. Maggie, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the Compliance Guy program. Uh, it's a pleasure to get an opportunity to hang out with you for just a little while. Thank you for having me. So I do want to say this. It is not every day that I get somebody who has the backbone and the thick skin who is willing to come on to the program who works for an insurance company. Um, and I, I promise I will, I will treat you fairly. I will be <laughs> as respectful as possible as I can. No, I will treat you with the utmost respect. That's the only way we do things here. But, you know, I think it's so important that we not only have regulatory and compliance professionals on who work in the physician practices and hospitals and health systems at suppliers, at pharmacies, PBMs, et cetera. I think it's so critical to have healthcare professionals on from the payer side because it allows my listeners and viewers to have an opportunity to recognize that there are humans that actually work at the insurance companies and there are a lot of good people despite what some folks think there are a lot of good people that work at the insurance companies so today um i want to chat with you and really have an understanding about the role of a corporate compliance officer or a Medicare compliance officer. But as I do with anybody who comes on the show, <clears throat> I know you didn't pop out of the wound and one day just say to mommy and daddy, I'm going to be a corporate compliance officer. I'm going to work in the most difficult industry in the world, in the most regulated, the most litigious, the most rule-driven industry. I'm going to be a compliance officer. I'm pretty sure that's not how it went. So, Maggie, again, 
thank you so much, as I said, for coming on the program today and hanging out with me and my listeners and viewers for just a little while. Well, again, thank you for having me. And, and I will say it is an honor that you reached out to me because I actually listen to your podcast religiously. So it's one of my favorite podcasts that I love to listen to. So you're right. Well, thank you I so much. Not, <laughs> I did not come out of uh, the womb wanting to be a compliance officer. And to be honest with you, when I first started my career, if you had asked me where I would be 30 years later, I would not have said I would be in regulatory compliance. I, I started in a completely different path. I actually have a degree in biochemistry. And from my biochemistry degree, I went on to get my pharmacy degree. And I had planned on being your corner pharmacist. You come in, you get your prescription filled. And, and I, I lived in Charleston, South Carolina. I loved the area. I loved my customers. I really enjoyed what I was doing. And looking back now, of course, it was early stages of compliance because any healthcare field is very strongly regulated. And I just didn't realize it at the time. I was lucky enough to have been selected to move into management. So I went from being a staff pharmacist to being a pharmacy supervisor to being a district manager and eventually worked my way up to being director of operations for the number three drugstore chain in the United States. And early in the 2000s, late 1990s, there was an advent of a number of different legislations that came out. HIPAA, Sarbanes-Oxley, the Deficit Reduction Act, the Medicare Modernization Act, all of these things required at least retail pharmacy operations to really take a step back and figure out how to operationalize all of these different components into our operations. So I moved from an operations position into a compliance position. And eventually I completely left the pharmacy business and went straight into compliance. And I have been in compliance now for about 15 years. And, and again, looking back at my career, knowing what I was doing early on really was compliance. It just didn't have that label of compliance. Right, right. So, and, and, and by the way, the check's in the mail. Uh, I, I, I appreciate it. I, I always love when people say, oh, I'm, I'm such an avid listener. I, I, <laughs> check, checks, checks in the mail. Thank you so much. <laughs> You know, so and it is, you know, your path is really actually a really interesting one, um, because, as you said, you started off in the pharmacy world. You know, you're a biochemist by education. You're a pharmacist by education. So what drove so what drove you to find Because you're right. There's all sorts of compliance in the pharmacy arena. Right. Lots of regulations, lots of rules, you know, all kinds of, you know, guidelines that you have to be aware of and follow. And and I, I've known a few pharmacists over the years, and they're some of the smartest people I've ever met. They really are. Um, 
But let me ask you this question, and it's not a loaded question. Um, what drove you to saying, you know, I think being the compliance officer, the Medicare compliance officer of a Medicare Advantage plan is a good idea. How did, how did you find yourself winding up at an MA plan? So my core philosophy is always about doing the right thing. Whether we're talking about what I do at home or what I do in the community or my job. So it really makes absolute sense that I would wind up going into compliance because I am about doing the right thing. And when one of the things that stands out to me in my career, when I started out as a pharmacist, there was an initial push in the 1990s about prescription error prevention and how to really understand and prevent prescription errors. And I, looking back now, I took it to the fullest extreme. So for instance, if a prescription was written on September 17th, and when it was put into the computer, it was put in as September 18th. In my mind, that made that prescription incorrect. Now, would that have been a prescription error? No, it would not. That would be a documentation error. But in my mind, looking at what I was doing, it forced me to take a step back and see what can I do to correct that to make my pathway more accurate. And I have taken that strategy with everything I do. And so again, it just makes perfect sense that I always want to do the right thing. I want to speak up for what is incorrect. And mostly, I, I want to help others to do the right thing. And that's yeah. also one of my core philosophies as well. And, and, and I want to explore some more of those with you in just a moment, because it, it's really interesting at least from my perspective, when, when most folks, when they think of Medicare, they don't think of Medicare having a compliance officer. Or if they do, right, because it's the government, right? They think that everybody that works at Medicare is either an administrator or, you know, they work in claims processing or in claims adjudication or some something like that. Now, that, for me, you know, when 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 somebody says to me, well, did you know that Medicare, you know, that, you know, these Medicare Advantage plans, you know, they have compliance officers. You know, my my natural instinct is to say, well, I would hope they do, right? Because if you go back to 2018, you know, and I could go back further than that, but in 2018, you know, there was a Medicare Advantage plan that agreed to settle for $270 million with the Department of Justice. Now, I don't know if those were the beginning days, you know, uh, of really Medicare Advantage plans and some of the wild, wild west stuff that may have been going on. But, you know, as recently as July 1st of this year, you know, a Medicare Advantage plan agreed to pay $4.2 million to resolve False Claims Act allegations that the plan violated the anti-kickback statutes by offering kickbacks to healthcare providers. And it's it's actually kind of an interesting case, but I, I bring those up 
because as I said, I don't think most people, when they think of Medicare, they think of Medicare as having a corporate compliance officer. So can we talk a little bit about some of the day-to-day responsibilities that you have as a stakeholder at um, a, a Medicare contractor? Absolutely. And so, you know, the examples that you point out as far as those cases are the very reason why we need to have Medicare compliance officers at at plans. And it is the day-to-day operations are all about how do you keep up with all of the different things that are out there, whether it's paying claims correctly, whether it is making sure that there's no excluded providers, whether there is um, any marketing material. And so it really is all about focusing on, again, doing the right thing. Now, there may be some gray areas where there are some things where you could say, well, it could be this and it could be that. But I can tell you that when you start getting into those big cases like you're talking about, it it may not be as clear as, as mud for back, lack of a better term. And yeah. they're usually very complicated and Medicare is very complicated. There are a number of different resources available. There are a number of different requirements that must be met. And it really does require having that oversight. One of the biggest challenges that a Medicare um, compliance officer is going to have is going to be delegated entities. And how do you control and manage those delegated entities? And ultimately, as a Medicare compliance officer, and whether I'm a Medicare compliance officer or if I was at a PBM or at another organization, my goal as a compliance officer is not to do the smackdown. Don't worry, I will when I need to but I really want people to do the right thing. I just, I, I don't want to force them. I want them to do it. Yeah. And, and, and I love, I love your, your commitment to compliance, to a culture of compliance, to doing the right thing. And I've had a chance to get to know you a little bit. And, you know, um, I, I believe, everything that you're telling me, you know, and, and you're right. You know, some of these cases, you know, the, 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 the most recent one, the one that I was just talking about, this one was really interesting because it's, it may not necessarily be in the area that a lot of folks would think about a Medicare advantage plan getting tagged by the federal government. But, you know, specifically with this case and, and, and according to the settlement announcement, the Medicare Advantage plan was allegedly distributing gift cards over the course of uh, about a year and a half to administrative assistance of physicians. And it was a way to basically induce these assistants to either refer, recommend, or arrange enrollment of Medicare beneficiaries into the plan. And again, remember, you know, the government, when they when they looked at this, they contend that the plan submitted or caused to be submitted claims to the Medicare program that wound up becoming tainted mm-hmm. 
under the anti-kickback statutes. So, you know, and I think this is another example of the the breadth of the AKS, right? The anti-kickback statutes, as well as really, in my opinion, the flexibility that enforcement authorities have in utilizing the statute as really a way to deter behavior that's problematic. You know, so one of the things, and 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 keep in mind for those of you that are newer into the regulatory compliance world, the anti-kickback statutes basically prohibit the knowing and willful offer of uh, payment of any remuneration, whether it's direct or indirect, in return for either referring, recommending, or arranging for an item or service that is reimbursable under the federal payer programs, whether it be in whole or in part. So, you know, to to Maggie's point, to deter this kind of behavior is one of the prime examples as to why Advantage plans need a corporate compliance officer. But I also like the fact, Maggie, that you were talking about, look, you know, I'm not I'm not here to beat anybody down. Right. I'm not here to beat down whether it's an employee of the MA plan. I'm not here to beat down a um, provider of the plan or a beneficiary of the plan. Now, I will if I have to. I think that's those were your words. And. And and I like that. Um, but I think a lot of folks, a lot of folks that send claims to Medicare Advantage programs, you know, they they think about issues that they run into with prior authorization. Prior auth is a huge issue in our industry. I, I, I think you would agree with that, right? Mm-hmm. It is. Okay. Let me let me ask you this. And, and I, I'm pretty sure I know I, I, I pretty I'm pretty sure I know what the answer is going to be, but I need to um make sure that our folks are hearing it right from you. When a prior authorization <clears throat> is performed by a hospital, by a practice, whatever it may whatever it may be. Um, why is it after they spend hours online trying to get this prior authorization that they receive a notice in the mail um, or email that says, you know, this prior authorization is not a guarantee of reimbursement? Quite on or quite simply, the. There are a couple of different things that could happen. Number one, just because you got a prior authorization today, there is the chance that the member may not even be a member tomorrow. They could disenroll. So just because you got that prior authorization today, they disenroll tomorrow, you treat them the day after, it's not a guarantee of payment. So there are so many things that could change from the point, and that's just one example. From the point at which that prior authorization is obtained to the actual services being rendered. And so that language is designed to make sure that everyone understands that there may be things that change. 
there could also be um, problems with the claim being submitted. Maybe the incorrect code was used. Again, the, the multitude of different things that could happen from the day that you get that prior authorization to the day the services are rendered and the claim is paid is unbelievably large. I'd like to say it's it's very small, but it's it's not. Unfortunately, yeah. healthcare, with the exception of pharmacy, is not real time. And so when you get that prior authorization, while it might seem real time, that claim is not going to go through until whenever the provider submits that claim. So there's that whole discrepancy there with regards to timing. That, and I think that's a very fair answer. And I thought that was probably the direction that you were going to go. I think that's probably one of the most benign <clears throat> answers that you can give. Um, I, you know, I have a lot of issues with prior authorizations, uh, obviously, but, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll save those for another conversation. Let me ask you, as a stakeholder with Medicare, how often are you engaging with law enforcement? How often are you engaging with OIG or with the strike force? Because we know Florida has a very active strike force. Um, UPICs, RACs, how often are you engaging with these other entities, these other agencies or law enforcement professionals? Um, because I try to explain to our listeners all the time that, even commercial insurance companies, their SIUs, they're continuously having engagements with, you know, the district attorneys, with the AUSAs, with other law enforcement members, talking about patterns of behavior, talking about billing patterns, talking about areas of risk where they believe, you know, there's a possible there there. So as, as a corporate compliance officer, how often are you engaging with these law enforcement professionals? So, and first I want to define engaging. I review the OIG website on a regular basis. I look at um, alerts that come out every day from HHS and things along those lines. Do I pick up the phone and call the Department of Justice? Not unless I need to. So I do engage, I do participate, and I do it pretty regularly as far as industry standards. So again, I have multiple different feeds that I look to for information, trends, um, including podcasts. And um, I, I engage as appropriate. So if there were a situation where we identified false claims, then absolutely I, I would pick up the phone and make that call if I needed to. But there's different levels of engagement and I'm very actively engaged. Let me ask you this question because, you know, I talk a lot about data analytics and I talk about how data really drives everything that happens in healthcare, right? We're so data heavy. Is it is it fair to and and I know you're not going to give the farm away, but is it fair to say that analytics plays a key role in your plan as well as other advantage plans 
targeting physicians and other providers of healthcare services for audit? How 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 much of a role does data play in your day to day work? Data plays a very big role, and it, it's not necessarily targeting physicians, but targeting trends. With the number of claims and the amount of information, you do kind of have to identify and do some type of analysis to determine where you're going to invest your biggest efforts. And are you going to invest your efforts in an item that's going to affect 100 claims versus an item that's going to affect one claim? Now, that one claim could be a million dollar claim and those hundred claims could be $10 claims. You kind of have to look at both of those and without data, you really can't. So you have to be able to use data analytics and it is a very big important part of what I do um, to really kind of striate your activity. Is it fair to say that it's no longer a matter of if you get audited, it's now a matter of when? Because with data, as you said, you're looking at trends, right? And, and, and I didn't mean to imply that you're, you're out looking to target providers, but you're, you're targeting trends of providers. Right. And is it fair to say that irrespective of where an individual's practice may be, whether it's in a rural area or it's in an urban area, there's no... There, there's no discrimination, right? Because it's based on who is an outlier, who demonstrates aberrance in their coding and billing patterns. So it, it doesn't matter if you're, because I think there's a lot of misperceptions, Maggie. I think a lot of folks believe that, well, if you're part of a large health system or if you're part of a physician group, you're more likely to be targeted than you are if you're a solo practitioner. And I try to educate people to say, that's not true. They're looking at the individual NPI numbers. Now, you could very well be looking at group NPI numbers if you have a, a, a group of neurologists who are outpacing everybody else when it comes to billing level fours or level fives. Or, But my position is, I don't care where you're located. I don't care the size of your group because it's based on the individual provider NPI number. And if you're spiking, you're the one that they're going to look at. Am I, am I right? Am I wrong? No, I think you're very correct on that. And, you know, I approach the audit philosophy from a very different perspective. So, for instance, if somebody wants to come in and they want to audit my records, I'm all for it because one of two things is going to happen. Either A, my data is correct and my work can justify my records, or B, my data is incorrect and, oh, my God, I have a problem. I need to fix it. And so I look at it from that perspective, and I would hope that others in the industry look at it that perspective as well. If, if they're doing it correctly and they're spiking as an outlier, the audit should not be a concern. The audit should be a way of validating that they are doing it correctly. Oh, I, I I'm so glad you, you said that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm so glad that you said that 
Because that's one of the things that I say to my clients all the time. That's what I say all the time to the listeners of, of the podcast or the viewers of the show. So what? You spike. So what? You have an aberrance. Who cares? As long as you're in compliance with the policies of the plan, as long as you're performing services in accordance with generally accepted standards of medical practice, let them audit your medical records. Unless you have somebody who is completely incompetent on the other side, reviewing your claims, your your outcomes should be just fine. I mean, I'm so glad you said that. That um, it's one of my core philosophies. Again, it, it's it's about doing the right thing, making sure the documentation is there, and I I welcome people to challenge because that challenge helps me substantiate that I'm on the right path. You know, and and I love hearing that. And I think you, you you probably read stuff all the time on the blogs. You probably read stuff on LinkedIn or you hear people on podcasts or listservs you're reading talking about, you know, just how unjust the insurance companies are when it comes to processing claims, how difficult they make it. Um, and and I don't I don't think you would outright disagree you may have some explanations for it but getting paid by insurance companies is challenging i try to tell people that the more challenging aspect is holding on to that money during a post-payment review would you agree with that i i would and you know i don't know that i i look at it as the insurance company is trying to make it difficult to make those payments. Those obstacles are there to ensure that those payments are being paid correctly. Ultimately, in the case of a Medicare Advantage plan, it's the government's money. And we have an obligation to make sure that that government's money is being spent appropriately. And if that means that we have to dot a few extra I's and cross a few extra T's, but we can be sure that that is payment appropriate and you're right that it doesn't get clawed back after the fact, then it's better to do that upfront than to have to scramble in the end. Don't, don't you think at some point it would be wise for Medicare to cease the way that they function, meaning it's a pay and chase system, right? Let's just pay all the claims and then we'll go back and we'll post audit everybody. You know, we'll post review. I mean, wouldn't it make more sense to have better controls in place up front to go back to? I remember when I first started in healthcare, I, I was answering phones at a multi specialty practice in 1989 and I learned a little bit about insurance and stuff like that, but I, I didn't really get into healthcare doing the kind of work that I'm doing now until 1995. And I remember back in 1995 when it was the Healthcare Financing Administration, so I'm dating myself, right? <laughs> and we had we had we had Administar Federal, which to me they were a pain in the butt, but in retrospect looking back, man did they do a great job of educating providers. 
we used to receive a Part B news update that it came out every single month. And as a healthcare stakeholder, our job was to read it, to disseminate it, and to put it into language that our providers were able to consume and process as simplistically as possible so we're not detracting from their ultimate job, which is to take care of patients. Why did CMS, when it converted to, from HICPA to CMS, why did CMS, you may not have this answer, so I'll make it a two-part question. Why did CMS, if you can't answer it, but more importantly, why are the Medicare Advantage plans not doing a better job of educating providers? Or are you educating providers, but you're putting it into a website without, you know, putting out or pushing out proper notices and, and information as to where they can find coverage determinations, local coverage policies, things of that nature? I know it was kind of a all around the horn kind of question. I'm sorry, but I'm <laughs> hoping you were able to follow it. I, I was. So let's first start with um, I cannot um, comment on why that decision was made to, to go differently. However, what I will say, provider education is always a critical component. But ultimately, what an organization has to look at is the member, because the member is ultimately the most important thing. And so you mentioned this already about providing care to the member. I would say that there might be a concern that if we went a different direction, that providers would feel that they could not, they would have to go through too many steps and, and red tape, and it could impact that service that the member gets. So, you know, pay and chase is a part of our industry, and it's a part of our industry because of the individuals that are receiving health care. And so if, if that went away, yes, at some point we could get to that provider education level that everybody is educated up front and there would not be any impact. But that bridge from here to there would be where I would say we need to focus on. And so, again, what the thought process behind it at the time, because that was before I was involved in compliance, I cannot speak to, but sure. I can see this from a member perspective. And ultimately, it is about the members. It's about making sure that the members get the health care that they need when they need it and that the provider is paid properly for those services. Fair enough. I have just a few more questions for you, Maggie. Um, what do you see as a stakeholder at a Medicare Advantage plan? What do you see as some of the biggest risks or target areas providers need to be aware of? So the biggest risk that I think providers need to be aware of is making sure that the claim information is correct whether it is that the code is proper or that there's a, uh, an incorrect modifier. 
because little things like that, number one, they'll delay the claim in being processed timely. And number two, they risk that the payment is inaccurate. And so from a provider perspective, I would say that making sure that that claim is accurate and appropriate at the beginning, instead of having to chase it down after the fact would be the biggest thing. I'm going to ask this question, but I'm not sure you're going to give me the answer to it. Okay. What are what are some of the specific audit targets that your Medicare Advantage plan is focusing on? We look at the Medicare goals. So we have a number of different targets that we look at. Um, you're right. I'm not going to give you the specifics. Um, but, how about if I went? You know, through, how about if I went through a list and you kind of <laughs> shake your head yes or no? <laughs> um, I could tell you that if you if you went through the uh, Medicare manual, it, it would be pretty clear what the the goals that my organization has. Every organization is going to be different, though. Um, to really be effective, a compliance program needs to conduct risk analysis, risk assessment. And they need to determine where their risks are and where they're going to prioritize their activities based on those risks and what those goals are. I'm so glad you brought up that term risk assessment (laughs) because so many people are thinking about risk assessment, right, from a HIPAA compliance standpoint. And yes, that's critical and that's so important. But I think what I'm taking risk assessment from is an OIG standpoint, right? Because we we are all familiar with the seven key elements of a corporate compliance program, but there's really eight of them. And the eighth one, which is the most unspoken, is conducting a risk assessment. And that's where I try to tell people, and, and correct me if I'm wrong on your end, Maggie, but a risk assessment is why Data analysis is so critical. Understanding your provider's utilization patterns, they're you know, running their utilization reports, using physician distribution curves to plot those and see if you're an outlier or where there might be aberrants in your provider's coding. We use, we use a program called CRA, Compliance Risk Analyzer. And for us, it, it, it's a predictive analytic model that we're able to determine on a scale from zero to 100 where a provider falls, whether it's the type of claim, whether it's using time units, whether it's modifiers, diagnosis codes, whatever it may be. And we've set a threshold for our clients that once you hit that 80%, you are now in a moderate risk of being targeted for those specific claims. So I'm really I'm, I'm really excited. I swear folks, this is not a premeditated conversation. I mean, th- this is a this is an off the cuff interview that we're doing here. Yeah, I had a chance to talk to Maggie a little bit um a, a week prior just so I could kind of get a a feel for her personality and and to figure out, you know, how many questions do I need to have? Can we get 30 minutes of uh, uh, of airtime? And I think everybody knows as long as I'm behind a microphone, we'll hit 30 minutes with just me talking. <laughs> but 
I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful that you brought up how important it is to do a risk assessment. But let me ask, let me, let me go through a, a few of them for you. Evaluation and management services. Big risk target. I would <laughs> say answering. it's probably a, a, a big risk, yeah. Okay. Modifier 25? Absolutely. Modifier 59? Just stop with modifiers. Okay. Okay. I'll stop there. One other one for you. Telehealth. I absolutely believe that um, telehealth could be a very big risk area, especially now, because telehealth has, because of COVID, has become a very big opportunity. You know, three years ago, yes. telehealth would probably have been a little bit lower. But because of having to go into all of the quarantine and stuff like that, you know, telehealth does have a, a relatively high risk because, one, we had to move into telehealth a lot faster. A lot of organizations had to, like, speed, like, roadrunner speed into telehealth right. because of COVID. And anytime that yeah. you go that kind of speed, you have the risk that you miss things. And that's where it's important that you're going back and looking at those things to identify those opportunities. And, you know, it's really interesting that you, you were talking about this, right? Because a lot of folks may not recognize this or, or even know that this happened. But in 2018, the Office of Inspector General conducted a study of telehealth services. And they determined that greater than 30% of telehealth services that were being billed to Medicare were not supporting what was being billed. So even prior to the public health emergency, which of course we got a lot of we got a lot of information that has created a lot of flux, if you will, in the industry, coming from commercial payers, advantage plans, CMS, you know, the contractors. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um but I I I do believe telehealth is a significant risk, not only based on the good, hardworking, honest, legitimate physicians who are billing it and who may not completely understand what the rules are because the rules seems like it's an evolving process. The rules keep changing. But yep. because there's so many fraudsters out there, there's so many you know, schemers and scammers that are out there using telehealth services that I, I think this is one of the highest, probably potentially the highest risk area for providers, at least through the end of the public health emergency. But I would agree. Let me, yeah, let me, let me ask you this. Do you see a lot of traditional Medicare Part B pay, uh, beneficiaries transitioning over to Medicare Part C for the Advantage plans? And if so, why? So I don't know that I can quantify the number, but I think that the Medicare Advantage plans bring a lot more benefits. You know, the whole supplemental benefit is really where there's an opportunity, you know, um, things like fitness programs and, you know, hearing programs and things along those lines that you might not necessarily see under Medicare Part B. 
ultimately, when it comes to that Medicare beneficiary, they, just like anything with Medicare Advantage, they have to do what's in their best interest. If they believe that Medicare Part B is better for them, then that's where they should be focusing. And if they believe that a Medicare Advantage plan, because of what it offers in the way of the supplemental benefits or even just the core benefits, but it has to be what's in the best interest of the beneficiary. I could not, um, I don't have the metrics to be able to tell you how many people are in a Medicare Advantage plan versus a, a Part B traditional Medicare plan. Sure. Um, but I, I personally see the benefit in a Medicare Advantage plan. Okay. Interesting. So, Maggie, one of the last things that I'll ask you, um, because we have a lot of younger listeners who are, you know, they're coders, they're billers. Um, they may have just gotten introduced to the world of auditing, but they're they're looking, they're aspiring to reach that next level. What advice could you give to the listeners, the viewers of our program? For those who are sitting there going, I want to do what Maggie does one day. What, what, what guidance, what advice could you give to some of those folks? Um, I would say the biggest advice that I could give is to network. Whether you're talking about networking on something like LinkedIn or whether you're talking about networking on HCCA or SCCE, find other compliance professionals, network with them, introduce yourself, understand what the dialogue is. Um, SCCE and HCCA have some really great um, social blogs where Compliance professionals can kind of ping back and forth and get questions and, and answers and guidance. And it's really interesting to see all of these people kind of come together and help get to that next level. And LinkedIn is a great way as well. So networking is probably the best place that I would suggest. Now, I, I am a member of HCCA. So, of course, I will always recommend that somebody get that membership. But you don't actually have to be a member to get access to some of these things. You can, they have some no cost memberships. So you still have an opportunity, regardless of what your level is, to begin that networking. And that's, uh, I, that's I do think that networking has probably helped me the most in the last 10 years because I do have compliance professionals that I can reach out to that. I see at meetings and things along those lines. And it, it's a great opportunity because this is a very unique function. You know, compliance, especially right. when you're talking about SIU, you know, generally we kind of see the things that go wrong. And it is very isolated. And that is one of the reasons why there's the perception in a lot of organizations that compliance is the police state. And so it, it by right. definition, kind of ostracizes the compliance community a little bit. And so it's really all about that culture, changing that culture, and networking is a great way to start. That's such great advice. Really appreciate it. 
All right, everybody. This is going to bring us to the end of this episode of The Compliance Guy with my very special guest, Maggie Parrott, who is a corporate compliance officer and a Medicare compliance officer for Mass Advantage, which is a Medicare Advantage plan, and she's based out of Tampa, Florida. Again, Maggie, it was such a pleasure getting an opportunity to hang out with you for about 45 minutes today, get to learn more about who you are, how you function, how you operate, and really, hopefully, bringing awareness to our listeners, our viewers, on what Medicare Advantage plans are doing, why you're doing it, and really the key role, the significant role that you as that corporate compliance officer is playing. Thank you very much for having me. All right, everybody. And as I said, thank you so much for tuning in, logging on, and hanging out with us just for a little while. As always, remember, be good to yourself, but more importantly, be good to each other. We'll be back tomorrow, Friday, the 22nd, for our Daily Dose. Don't miss it. You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.